Welcome back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas. Okay, we are kicking off a new series today that I am um, really excited about. Uh, we're going to spend a number of episodes. This will actually probably be my longest series to date, almost surely it will. Um, and we're going to talk about the church. And um, my reason for this is I think many of our struggles, many people's struggles in their faith are actually rooted in their experience in the church, uh, their understanding of the church, of what it is, what it isn't, um, or their background in the church of experiencing certain things, seeing certain things, not experiencing certain things. And so um, the series is going to be a mixture of two kind of episodes. Uh, one kind of episode will be, I want to explore a bunch of the metaphors used in the scripture to describe the church, the people of God, and we'll take those New Testament metaphors and actually trace them back to the Old Testament and where their roots are. And hopefully, I think when we do that, um, we come can come to actually a little bit more of a fuller understanding of what it means to be the church, what it means to be the people of God. So that'll be one kind of episode. Uh, and then we'll have uh, some interviews um, with different uh, pastors and theologians um, talking about some current issues in the church uh, and some of the dynamics of church life. And so today I'm kicking things off uh, a conversation uh, that I had with Dr. Glenn Packiam, Reverend Dr. Glenn Packiam. Uh, uh, Glenn is a, the teaching pastor at New Life Downtown in Colorado Springs. My wife and I attended there for about eight months uh, when we lived in Colorado and just absolutely fell in love with the church and uh, with Glenn. And um, so we have a wonderful conversation about worship. Uh, Glenn used to be part of uh, worship ministry, and now he's a pastor of a congregation, has played kind of both sides there. And, uh, and we have a great conversation about um, corporate worship in the church as we're all coming out of lockdown in various degrees. And, and for many of us, just in the last few months, we've been able to sing together for the first time in, in months or maybe even close to a year. Uh, in some cases, and um, and so we want we had a great conversation around worship in the church, uh, and we talk about everything from lights and smoke to liturgy to songs to a theology of worship to different paradigms that people have in worship, how we wrestle through some of those things. Um, we talk about a whole host of things, and um, I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation, uh, and we uh, we have a, a good time doing it as well. So uh, this is going to kick off our a series on on worship, and we've got uh, some other people uh, already slated. I've already got some other people slated to come on the podcast as well, and we'll talk about them uh, as the, the episodes go along. But uh, for now, let's start things off by talking worship with uh, Dr. Reverend Glenn Packiam. Okay, uh, I got Glenn Packing with me. Welcome uh, to the podcast, the podcast, podcast, whatever it is, podcast, Glenn. Uh, Dr. Dr. Glenn, pa- Glenn Packiam, thanks so much for, for coming on. Oh, thank you so much, Maxwell. Great to be on. Great to see your face again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, before we get in to our topic, I'm going to jump something on you here that I didn't tell you that I was going to do before <laughs> we started recording, because uh, we want to give the people really what they want. And that is this as a green Bay Packer fan. That's you. That's me. There have been rumors that 
<laughs> my beloved quarterback may end up on your team, which may be, depending on who you ask, if you ask you, I think that's the blessing of God, if that happens. <laughs> if you ask our mutual friend, Brian Zond, who is a Chiefs fan, that's the judgment of God, because now he has to play Aaron Rodgers. He's got to play Aaron Rodgers, yep. How are you? Are you wishing this will happen? Are you hoping oh, for this? A hundred percent. I'm hoping it would happen. I, okay. Okay. I was super bummed on the on draft night when we didn't draft um, Justin Fields, Fields? at, at okay. number nine, and and we uh, for the listener, Denver Broncos. Yeah. Um. And and so then when I heard these rumors of Aaron Rodgers, I thought, well, I'll take that. He's 37. Yeah. If Brady can win a ring at 42 or 43 or whatever. Then maybe A Rod's got some. Maybe Aaron Rodgers got some. Some juice life. Left you there. already poached peyton manning at the end of his career right. you got a super we know Bowl we out can of it. do this you can do it again yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely again. you had old john elway win you had old exactly. peyton manning win you just need exactly, old aaron Rodgers to win oh Lord. exactly this is the broncos we don't know how to develop quarterbacks we just you know poach them and they're poach them at the end of the yeah when they're disgruntled yeah. and and throw them into the system absolutely <laughs> exactly. Exactly. can we also um can we also just put in i had one person request can we get a desperation band Ooh. cover here at the end? For those Ooh. who don't remember or don't know, maybe I hope people know it's desperation okay, band. Know. One of the great early 2000s, like youth worship, young people worship bands. And you played keys. Yeah. For them? I played key. I played guitar, too. I okay, did, okay. kind of switched around depending on the song, you know, okay. use a guitar on the upbeat ones. And keys yeah, yeah. On right. I, uh, I actually was listening. I had my Alexa played some desperation band <laughs> stuff this afternoon when I was having lunch just to get ready for this. I was like, let's bring, let's, let's just bask in 2004 glory. And uh, yeah, that's great stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when, when we were coming to, to new life in Colorado Springs, I did not realize that you were like the same. Cause you used to have like the, the hipster, longer like hair. goatee and yeah, longer hair. Goatee. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I was like, this is that guy. This is amazing. <laughs> oh, awesome. I'm home. This is odd. This is so good. Uh, but so actually that's connected to why I wanted to have you on. I want to have a conversation about worship. And um, we're, we're doing a series on the podcast about the church. Mm. And um, what you make, you just came out with a book um, on worship, worship in the world to come, I think is the title. Is that correct? Um, yeah, worship in the world to come. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And you make this claim at the beginning of the book. I think it's on page one or two that uh, it's a two word sentence that Christians sing <laughs> and that Christians have always sung. And from the very beginning, even in the book of Acts, um, when we see the two apostles in the, in the prison, Paul and Silas, and they are singing um, when they're in, when they're in prison. And so Christians have always been a singing people. Yeah. And now here we are kind of coming out of lockdown and everybody's been watching YouTube sermons and listening to podcasts and taking communion on their own with, you know, Welch's grape juice and the loaf of bread that they have in their, their cupboard. But one thing that we have not really been able to do uh, is sing together right. for quite a while. Right. And so, it, but that is foundational, I think, to who we are as a people um, from somebody who's been on the worship leader side now on the pastoral side who oversees all of that. Um, maybe just open us up, talk to us a little bit about the, 
the fundamental aspect of what it means to be the people of God um, as people who sing and not only sing, but uh, what sing together, that we sing yeah. corporately, that we're not yeah. just individual silos, but we actually sing together as a really a core aspect of who we are. Um, yeah. What what comes to your mind when we start thinking about that? Yeah, I, I mean, it is interesting. I have a friend who who emailed me um, after the book came out and said that, that he spent some time as a missionary in Spain, and he and he said the people, the locals, were trying to get uh, a feel of who they were, who this group was, and they said, you know, we 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 knew. Um, you know, we knew who the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses were. We knew who Catholics were, but we don't know who you guys are. And then they reckon they realize, hey, these these people have guitars and, and they're singing all the time on street corners, and they go gather in each other's apartments and they're singing. And so they just started to nickname them the people who sing. And uh, and I I just thought that was really great because uh, obviously you go further back in the scriptures and you go to the, the Psalms. Israel was a singing people. Um, and they they sang in Egypt. They sang out of Egypt. They sang in in the wilderness. They sang in the promised land. And so Christians, of course, we, that that tradition gets carried on by Christians. And and Christians would pray and sing the Psalms or early uh, early on in the formation of the life of the church. And then they began to write their own songs, as you see in the New Testament: Mary's song, um, Simeon's song. Those become early Christian hymns, Philippians 2 and Colossians 1 and all these hymns that show up in the New Testament. And uh, there's something about a revelation of who God is and what God has done that evokes a song. And and I I think, you know, there's all kinds of psychological reasons of this, you know, the the way that that the human voice um, resonates and reverberates inside of us. There's a physiological thing. We know that now that actually our brains release chemicals when we sing together. When groups of people sing together, your brain releases oxytocin. So God made us to almost re- have our bodies reward us when we sing um, in, in, in groups of people. So we're people who sing, but not just any old song, a song, songs about who God is and what God has done and songs about who we are as the people of God, songs that reinforce our identity, uh, songs that that rehearse our story uh, of salvation. So there's a there's a long there's a long rich tradition here, which is what has made the pandemic so difficult. That you know we we, we kind of sing maybe in in uh, as we watch a service, but uh, you know it's been difficult. Yeah, and um, I was just listening to um, this lecture by. Chris Green. Do you know Chris? Mm-hmm. Do you know who Chris mm-hmm. Green is? Okay. Mm-hmm. And he was quoting James Smith, Jamie Smith. Yeah. Yep. Who you quote in your book. Mm-hmm. And, um, this essay that Smith just wrote where he says, um, I he says in the essay, I'm rethinking my own profession in a sense of philosophy and theology. And in this essay, he says, I'm I'm going to cast my lot with the poets and the songwriters and the authors because there's something in the art of singing and poetry and the like that we, that they have something to say about God that we cannot say in argument and theology and in preaching, which was a little bit of a soul crusher for people like me who love preaching. <laughs> well, me but too. it's, but yeah, yeah, but it is true. Yeah, it is true. And, and there is, uh, there, I think there is something to there. You, in your book too, you talk about singing being and corporate worship being a 
um, see, I have it written down here, a, a catechetical yeah, practice. Catechetical, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Um, and unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah. I mean, think of catechism classes. If you know, anyone was, was in denominational churches or whatever, it's those classes that you take before your confirmation, you know? So usually it's a denomination where you're baptized as an infant then you go through catechism and then you're confirmed as a young adult, a teenager. Well, all worship has a catechetical effect. We, it's teaching us something. It, it's saying something. And I think this is why, you know, some called worship wars are, are the people who emphasize the catechetical or let's just say the formative formational impact or power of worship and the people who, who emphasize the experiential or emotional um, power of worship. And I want to say it's both of these things and we don't have to pick one and we can actually rejoice in, in them being together. And, you know, you, you mentioned the arts and the poets there, there is an emotionally evocative power that art has, that poetry has, that music has, um, that is the reason we sing. Uh, so, so, so we, we, we don't write back to God some, some sort of um, a dissertation about, his, about our feelings for him. When God saved Israel out by crossing the Red Sea, they sang, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that's, that's the power of this is it captures that there's a deeply personal, deeply emotional kind of response to this. And yet it can't be superficial. It can't be thin. It can't be an inaccurate portrayal. So that's why the catechetical or formative power uh, also comes to play. We want to make sure that what we are singing and what we are praying, because it's so powerful emotionally, uh, we want to make sure that it is um, substantive. It is revealing God in the right way. I, I think it's interesting, you know, that so much of scripture, uh, it, it, uh, you know, it, they are songs, uh, not only in the book of Psalms, but the, the, the songs we've mentioned in the New Testament. And that Paul cared about those songs so much that he actually includes them in his letters. And I have argued uh, in, in some academic papers that, when Paul includes these hymns in Philippians and in Colossians, it's not like the preamble, you know, like in church where worship is the warm up kind of deal, you know, no, he's actually including it because that's the premise for the rest that he, for, for his theology and for his pastoral a, uh, admonition. So all of that says to us, Hey, what if songs are actually more powerful than we think that they, they wake us up emotionally, they lay the groundwork formatively, uh, and then we can extract from that the theology and the pastoral implications and all of that. Yeah, you. So you just hit on something that I I wanted to to touch on, and and that is in in your book, and I, I've gone on this journey even myself. You lay out really three, but I want to highlight the two actually that you just you just laid out, kind of paradigms of of worship. Uh, one being kind of the language of experience or yeah. encounter, yeah. encounter. Yeah. and this is heavy in charismatic Pentecostal circles. And then this language of formation um, of God doing something in the worshiper, really whether you feel it or not, mm -hmm. that we're, mm -hmm. we're being changed slowly, maybe even from, from the inside out based on what it is that we're singing and how God's presence works and his spirit is at work and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and you already kind of answered the question of it has to be, we have to think about those both. And I come from a tradition that's real heavy on the experiential encounter mm. side. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, what I worry sometimes in that side of things is that, um, and you actually tell a story in your book about somebody who kind of admitted to you, hey, actually, sometimes I don't feel anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. God doesn't seem to show up. <laughs> right. And right. Um, it's just a normal service. And I, you know, I have to do other things or, you know, some people have to grit their teeth. Or I think the person in your, in your book tells like, sometimes I just open my eyes and I watch yeah. other people and yeah. which is actually a great thing. I'm not saying that, <laughs> but is. right, right, right. It puts us, they were putting their finger on something that I think I would love to have a conversation about. Cause I don't think it's talked about enough is how do we, how do we try and bring these two things together so that we can say, yeah, we do expect God to show up, but maybe God showing up isn't just a synonym for some 15 minutes of spontaneous worship where you have this moment of ecstasy. Like those two things, yeah. Yeah. there's not always a straight line from one to the other. Mm-hmm. And in, in the circles that I have largely run in, that is, I mean, that's kind of the equation is encounter means the planned service going off the rails because God has shown up and has subverted our plans. And in some churches, you know, they'll even, you know, pre-service prayer, they'll even pray things like, Lord, we have this plan, but we don't care about our plans. You show up and do whatever you want. And the, the presupposition is there is God doesn't actually really want to work in the plans. If he's going to show up, he's going to do something completely different. How do we begin to as someone who's sitting in the seat, I'm thinking primarily, um, how to begin to help people think through that so that, you know, Sunday mornings don't become a did God show up today or didn't yes. he kind of moment? There's so many things there, Maxwell. I mean, just just really, really wonderful. You're putting your finger on a lot of the, uh, you know, sensitive spots for people. I, I think that um, each of these paradigms, and there's three of them, you know, the, the paradigms are ways of answering the purpose of the Sunday gathering or the worship service, the gathered church. And the one says we gather to be formed. The other says we gather to meet with God encounter. And the third says we gather to reach the lost. And this is really about, you know, people who don't know. And, and all of these paradigms are biblical. All of them are inspired or, or um, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But any one of them, if we overemphasize them, we are at risk of distorting them by overemphasizing them. And the encounter one you, that you're 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 you know digging in on here, in particular, distorts in a couple of directions. One, it distorts when we sort of put this pressure on ourselves to have an experience every time I come to church, and that's man, that's a lot of pressure. And and sometimes the way, and I can speak about charismatics because that's my tradition as well. Um, you know, sometimes as charismatics, it's like, uh, if I don't have this experience, then I wasn't really worshiping, quote unquote, you know, I, I, I just was going through the motions. And I just think that's too much pressure on it. And that's not even how relationships work. Not every time I sit down uh, to dinner with my family, do I feel so much feelings about them, you know, or go on a date with my wife. So it's okay. Part of, part of intimacy is normalcy. You know, that that's actually the, 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 the normalcy of intimacy or the intimacy of normalcy, you know, running to the store for, for, you know, doing errands or whatever. So there is something about, we just keep showing up and it's okay. I don't need to have a mountaintop every time. 
Um, so it puts pressure on the worshiper, but secondly, it puts pressure on, on church leaders because then church leaders, worship leaders, pastors, whatever, the people on the platform start to feel like they need to create the experience. Now we're on dangerous ground. Like the other one might create kind of spiritual anxiety, you know, the, the, the stuff that Martin Luther and, and uh, Melanchthon talked about where they wrestled with the, the anxiety of their own guilt. Well, the charismatic version is the anxiety of our non-experience. Um, but, but on the church leader side, it's more dangerous because now we're talking about the temptation toward manipulation. And it's not, it's not hard to know how to do that, to play the right chords, dim the lights in the right way. Throw those minor chords, throw those signs for the minor chords to the keyboard player and, you know, <laughs> sing some desperation band and you're there. <laughs> We're there, man. You're there, baby. Give me that keyboard pad. Um, yeah. So, so we have to be so careful. Again, when something is powerful, the answer is not to not use it. Or, or, you know, to correct the misuse of it, the, 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 the proper correction to the misuse of something is the proper use of it, not the non-use of it. So I'm not saying, well, let's not, you know, and, and by the way, just a little rabbit trail, the Augustine and other people throughout church history had some nervousness about music because it was so beautiful to the ears and so pleasing to the soul. They, they were nervous about that stuff. And I understand that, I, but I don't think the answer is to say, well, let's not have any music or a good sound system or whatever. I think the answer is let's steward this power well and let's make sure that we're not trying to conjure up a manufacturer and experience for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And um, I think, well, let, yeah, let's go. Let, let's go there. How do you think? So I think a lot of times when people begin to talk about corporate worship, the first place, and sometimes I think sadly the only place they go, is they start talking about lights and smoke and things like atmosphere that are usually associated with that. And I don't want to get into like whether they're good or not, because that's I, I don't think really matters a whole ton. But what I am, I think is an interesting conversation and it plays into what you just said is when we feel the pressure, uh, whether subconsciously or really overtly, what we need is we need to quote unquote encounter God every Sunday. And so we want to build, and you'll hear the, the word like atmospheres. We want to build like an atmosphere to host God's presence yeah, or to invite yeah. God to come. And so the answer to some of those questions is, okay, so let's dim the lights so people mm -hmm. don't have to see each mm -hmm. other. Um, <laughs> and let's, you know, to, so that they feel more comfortable and all yeah. of this kind of stuff. And, beside whether you know you should have lights or smoke or whatever is beside the point but there is a deeper conversation about how should we think about the corporate environment mm. in which we worship because i think about like some of the great cathedrals of the yes. earth they're beautiful not just because the church had money to spend but because they were trying the atmosphere itself was trying to bring the worshiper into a particular mind in a, a space in their mind space in their heart of the majesty of god the beauty of god even you read about the temple the same same thing god is very particular about build a tabernacle in the temple this way because it right, was meant right. to that's evoke, very true yeah, yeah it's meant to evoke and remind the worshiper you're in the garden and there's the, the cherub and and the tree and all of these things right it's the the atmosphere is actually saying something to the to the worshiper how do you think 
how, how should we wrestle with that even in our modern context um, where church sanctu- sanctuaries and whatever are kind of utilitarian and we're borrowing from the culture a lot and all of that kind of stuff. And how do we begin to even think through what are some of the physical things that we can do to help bring people together to worship? Um, like an interesting one, I remember reading Eugene Peterson's uh, book. I think it was his autobiography when he talked about when they built their sanctuary. I think the like the the table was at the center and everything kind of like went around. Um, the seats went around, and he he talked about the reason for that is he he didn't want to be the center of the worship gathering. He wanted the physical space to say something that the table, the bread and the wine, they're the center of the gathering. Um, how can we begin to think through some of that? Man, well, uh, you, again, you're, you're really doing a great job identifying uh, the pieces here. I, I think um, you are right that the church has a long history of setting the atmosphere of awe and reverence and worship. I mean, the, the great church buildings around the world, cathedrals, you know, one of my favorites, Durham Cathedral, a thousand years old. Uh, it, it's, there's something special about entering into it. Um, so should we use art and, uh, to evoke beauty and worship? Absolutely. And, and you rightly point out to, to Leviticus where these artisans, it says were, you know, the full, full of the spirit and they were to be filled of the yeah, spirit. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. They're, they're called filled with the spirit and working by the spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. So they are spirit filled artists using their craft um, as an, as part of their contribution to worship. So absolutely. Uh, I think where people get nervous is they, they make the parallels and they're like, well, that just looks like a Coldplay concert or whatever. And I, I understand the criticisms and there are some important differences. So, the, you know, the trick with any conversation about art and beauty, and there are people that are way smarter than me who talk about this stuff is how subjective, how objective is beauty and then all of that stuff. And that, you know, that's beyond my, my study and my knowledge. Um, but I, I do think that the, some of the key differences are about the purpose. Um, the, the purpose of art and beauty in a Christian context, it's, it's always a signifier, uh, a sign rather. It's, it's meant to sort of point towards um, God and, and his activity in the world. It's never an end in itself is what I'm trying to say. And I, I think sometimes when we see art in, in uh, non-religious use or non-Christian use, it's just an end in itself, particularly modern art. You know, like it's not even supposed to communicate anything. Like, what does this mean? Who cares what it means? It just is, you know. Like it's an most... NFT that you can sell for millions <laughs> yeah, of dollars. Exactly. Uh, and I don't think we think like that with art in worship. It, it is to an end and the end is worship. But secondly, you you brought up the thing about dimming lights and seeing and not seeing one another. I really, we really have strong feelings about that at New Life. Um, we want to see people. Um, I get dimming the lights a little bit, you know, for for a bit of a help your 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 body relax. But if you see each other's faces, that's not why we came. If we could do this on our own, and again, to your point about in the pandemic, one of my nervousness about uh, this last year is that we've developed the habit, the bad habit of uh, privatizing and, and, and um, sort of curating our own worship experience. You know, I got my Spotify playlist, I got my podcast, and this is me and Jesus. 
excuse me, no, it's not yeah, UNG. That's great for the other days of the week. But there's got to be one time a week where we gather with the church together. And if we're going to gather, we might as well see one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're. Uh, there's two things there that actually I'd already written down too that I wanted to, mm, to touch mm, on is mm. talk about, because I think there is a real danger in, in some circles with the, actually the dimming lights out of all the things in that conversation. This is actually the one that I also have the most, I have the strongest feelings about because the idea is, and you'll even hear, I've even heard some people say it is everybody will come in and the, you know, the worship leader starts strumming, whatever, and the associate pastor, whoever is going to get up and open the service. And we'll even say things like, hey, let's worship like it's just you and Jesus here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, gonna, yeah, and, yeah, right, right. Right. And we're going to dim the lights. Mm-hmm. So it's just you and Jesus and you don't have uh-huh. to worry about what's going on around you. And you just encounter encounter the Lord. What's the danger? I mean, you kind of already put your hand on it, but di- let's dig a little deeper in that because I I've actually come to have, I think, kind of pretty strong feelings about that. What do you see as the danger of of that? Oh, I mean, it undermines the whole purpose of gathering in a corporate way. And I, I like you, I've heard worship leaders say that. So we just want you to have your personal experience with Jesus. And and thankfully, no one here at our church has said it. <laughs> I hear it sometimes. When Otherwise, I'm they'd be in your office the next day. <laughs> well, we'd be, we'd be having a conversation. Uh, but but it's sometimes when I'm traveling and I think, well, if that's the case, we should have all stayed home. You then know, the, then lockdown is was made for us, you know, it was made for us. Yeah. Uh, and so going back to something we said at the beginning of our conversation, you know, about brain chemistry, there was a study that was done about when people sing together in groups, the brain releases oxytocin. So, you know, there's two things you could say from that one, you could possibly say, well, you see, it's not really the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's just brain chemistry, you know, but the other thing you could say is, well, but who made your brain? (laughs) And if you're going to believe in God and a God who is the, the creator, and you're going to believe that, that you need to worship him, then why wouldn't this God have made us in such a way that our bodies reward us for doing what he told us to do? You know? So the psalmist says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And he doesn't know about oxytocin, but he knows this is what we're supposed to do. So, so again, the people of God is a, a, a huge part of what happens when we worship together. It's not, uh, it's not just a vertical experience. It's horizontal as well. The other one that you, that you said, and that you kind of touched on a little bit is, um, having your own, your own kind of personal time with Jesus and you'll, you can kind of leave your cares and things like that at the door and just come and be with Jesus for yourself. You, you have this great, actually your own podcast series that you're doing with uh, a local rabbi, Rabbi Joe, is that, was that his name? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you're opening, I think, I think it's first and second is on lament or is it just the first one that's on? Oh, first, first one is on lament. lament. And then we start working through Psalm 13. Psalm 13. So that's the lament theme kind of continues. Comes, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I took away from, from that conversation um, when I, the first episode, when I, when I listened to it was, isn't the idea of, and again, you'll hear some people say, Hey, just leave your worries at the door and come in and worship Jesus forget out about what's around you. It's just you and Jesus time. And what I, what I took away from your conversation with Rabbi Joe is, isn't, isn't that actually kind of the exact opposite of what we want? 
I, I don't want to leave my worries at the door. Yeah. I want all my worries in a, in a sense. I mean, I get what I think is trying to be said. There, sure. Yeah. But I, I actually want all of my worries to come into the door so that I can offer them up to God and actually bring them before God, not so that they stay as a separate part, as if they even could stay a separate right, part of right. my life. But I actually, I actually want, and part of the lament tradition is I actually want to bring those and offer them themselves as worship to God and a, an expression of my need and my dependence and, and uh, my looking for grace and mercy and trust in who, who God is. What, what do you think about the idea of being able to leave, leave your problems, check your problems at the door and, and come in and talk to just be with Jesus? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think the Psalms teach us to bring our whole selves before God. And the, the, the trick with saying leave your problems or leave, you know, forget about what's worrying you um, is it sounds very much like cast your cares upon Jesus, except it's actually not saying that. Um, there is a critical difference between saying forget your problems and cast your problems. You know, uh, the one holds them before God and the other hides them from God. And, and I think that's, that's a, a critical difference here. We are not trying to hide our sin or our anger or our sorrow or our fear from God. We're trying to hold them before God. And the Psalms teach us how to do that. And, and look, I, as a pastor, so it's one thing to talk about this theoretically and all this stuff, but as a pastor, it is tricky. I mean, I, do I want to gather the church on a Sunday morning and have my worship leader, you know, start out with a sorrowful lament? You know, it, so I, I want to be careful that, that the, the principle is bring your whole self before God in worship. That doesn't mean that every Sunday, you know, has, has these moments or, you know, laments or whatever, but that someone plays I, the dirge. We don't need someone. Exactly. To play the dirge. <laughs> exactly. But I do think there are these, these um, windows of opportunity that you don't want to miss that you say, well, what if, what if we took this moment here? And, and for us, we have a, a moment in our service every week that is a weekly confession of sin. And so that there's, there's a place there to do that. Um and, 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 and sorrow sometimes almost can be addressed more delicately from the preacher. I, I'll give an example of a pastoral conversation we were just having with our team recently about Mother's Day. You know, Mother's Day can be painful for, for people who have not been able to get pregnant or for people who uh, maybe not yet married, but, but have always wanted to be a mother um, or those who lost them. I mean, there's pain all, all around the, the, the day, but there's also tremendous joy. So the, creative team made a video that shows various moms of various generations, you know, just smiling, laughing with kids, some music in the background, 60 seconds. And as you know, it says happy mother's day. And at first there was some text in the video that said for all who have lost for all who are wait. And we just thought it's true, but trying to address it in the middle of a 60 second video, that's not the way. So we decided show, let the video be the video and then let the pastor do the pastoral thing. So, so in the person that comes up, They'll say, hey, listen, today is a day of mixed emotions for some people are super happy and some people are super sad. And so you address it, but you don't have to address it at that moment. So in a similar way, can we address the spectrum of our emotions in a worship service? Yes. But do they all need to be addressed by the song choice? Not always. Yet yeah. um, we got about six, seven minutes left. 
tell me about um before we got on i was telling you about when when we were living in colorado springs for just under a year and we were attending your church i went to an ash wednesday service which i had never been to in my entire life and i actually have this one of my favorite pictures still on my phone is me and my then uh see he'd been one and a half almost two-year-old son with ashes on our forehead and i was caught up that night in the story not my own story, yeah, but in yeah. the story of Israel, in the story of God. And I, I mean, it was just, I had this profound to ironically say encounter. Like I had a moment, <laughs> with, yeah, a yeah. moment with Jesus, but it wasn't, mm -hmm. it was actually the opposite way in which I had yes. always been trained. It wasn't because it was a spontaneous moment. It yes. was actually because of the liturgy of the, yes. the order of worship. What's the importance of and, and how can we begin to, I think, maybe do a better job of thinking about um, worship as pulling on and drawing on story rather than just being um, kind of refrains about maybe wanting God to come or God to do something, but singing about the story of God and incorporating that both into just the lyrics, but even into our, uh, into the, the service at large, using yes. things like liturgy, the Eucharist, yes. maybe the church calendar, wherever you want to go. I know those are all things that you guys do at, at new life downtown. Um, how, how do all of those things tie into, so we kind of talked about the encounter paradigm. Now the formative paradigm, how, how can people begin to start to think through some of those formative practices that the church has passed down for generations and how they connect to our discussion on, on worship. Yeah. Story is a huge part of this. So when I sometimes will we'll talk to people and, and, and talk to them about the places to pay attention to in their worship services, the one is the songs, which we've talked about here. How can we make songs more robust in what their, their content is? And, and we can look to the scripture, the songs in the scripture to, to challenge us. But, but then how can our sermons kind of also uh, address that? And I've, I've hinted at that a little bit about addressing the spectrum of emotions um, but there is this other piece, this third piece, which is how does the service shape itself uh, tell a story? I, I think there's a lot we can learn from, from the older liturgies. The older historic liturgies were designed to take us on a journey from gathering, gathering us in, proclaiming the word, calling us to the table where we confess and receive grace, and then sending us out. So gathering, word, table, sending, that fourfold sort of move. Um, it switched in America a couple hundred years ago with the frontier revivals to this kind of threefold shape, which is essentially song, sermon, altar call. Nothing wrong with that. It's the frontier revivals kind of legacy. Churches began to adopt it. Again, nothing wrong with it, uh, except that now we kind of our iteration of it in, in, in many places is it's kind of like this variety show. Like it could be a song or it could be a magician or it could be a cover band. You know, it could like, let's just warm the people up. That could what be desperation is. band. Yeah. <laughs> hey, now, hey, now, careful, <laughs> careful. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, um, and, and then the sermon uh, was the real sort of Ted talky kind of thing. And then the decision moment. And we have to say, wait, hang on. In what way is this Christian worship now? You know, and, and so we need this. We need this fourfold shape. Um, to, to kind of re re return us to a story-minded, story-formed um, worship service. And places like 
uh, Ash Wednesday, you really see it. You know, the, the God of creation who created us out of dust, the, the sin that kind of reduces us to dust, uh, the Savior who became uh, incarnate in our flesh, you know, uh, and, uh, and when he was raised up from the dust of death, so to speak, breathes his breath into us. I mean, there's this whole narrative that, that you, you go through. Um, and, and it's a beautiful story. We ought to tell it. We ought to, we ought to reenact it. We ought to embody it in our worship. Um, and yes, the church calendar is a way to do that on the macro level. So throughout the, the year, you just kind of gently are moving people through time by helping them trace the events of the life of Christ. So I didn't realize this, you know, 10, 15 years ago, whatever, when we started um, implementing the church calendar, but I've learned that, you know, what people have known for a long, a long time, the church calendar is marking time around the life of Christ. Well, who doesn't want to do that? You know, like, oh my gosh, let's do that. Advent uh, around the anticipation of his arrival, Christmas, his birth, Epiphany, his revelation as the king uh, lends his suffering and, and, and humiliation and uh, Good Friday, all on and on it goes. We're, we're marking time around the life of Christ, um, even as we mark time by vacations and, and trips and, and kids' activities and all of that as a, as a subway. So, so the church calendar is one way to do that. The, serv- the individual service shape is one way to do that. And I do think, you know, preachers and worship leaders can work together on this to say, what bit of the story are we going to try to emphasize this week? And I, and I think there are subtle and brief ways that you can um, point out the rest of the story to the people, like to say, hey, you know, we know this is the beginning, we know this is the ending, but here's where we're going to kind of zero in on today. And that's okay. Um, we are, pe- people are so contextless when it comes to worship and, and salvation and the scriptures, A, because they're not reading the Bible, B, because we live in sort of this postmodern age where narrative and story disappears. So the temptation is just to sort of sell out to that, give into that and say, well, that's fine. Let's just do the God meeting you right now, right here thing. Uh, that's good. But we also have to help people locate themselves in the grand story of it all. I was in a... Uh, that's wonderful. I was in a just a, a meeting yesterday. So we're living overseas trying to learn a new language. And we were meeting with a language coach. And she helps people kind of organize their language classes and all this stuff. And she drew this illustration on the board. And she had drew this big circle with people inside. She said, this is the new world in which you have now come to. And these people are in here. And you're on the outside of this circle. And the goal of language is not just to be able to speak the same words as those people, because that wall around is not just a new language. It's a new world. And then she actually used the word. She goes, it's a new story. These Mm. people, these people live in a different world than you do. And language is the vehicle by which you share that world and you share that story. And she used this example of it's like when you were physically born. You were born on a stage where a play was already going. Wow. And your growing up is just you figuring out who the characters are in this story that's unfolding around you. And you're learning your lines and where you fit into that story. And now what this is where, you know, where we've just moved to a different country is you've moved to a different theater as an adult, and you have just plopped into the middle of this play that's already been going, it's already been taking place. And you're having to figure out not just what in the world are these people saying, you're trying to figure out what's the story 
that they're telling. And it struck me, it struck me when she was saying that this is actually, I think, what happens in our salvation is that we are born again onto this new stage that kind of overlaps with our own. And now the story has changed and we are plopped into the middle of the story of the God of Israel. And we have to figure out what is it that is going on around us? And I hear words, and these are not just theological jargon preaching sermons. If it's done right, and this is, I think, what you're putting your finger on now is it's telling everything here is telling us a story. The words that we sing, the words that we preach, even the order of the service, what the building looks like, how we function together, it's all telling a story. And part of what it means to be Christian is we're trying to figure out what is this story And what's my place in the story? Because I've just been born into the middle of this stage of this story of the God of Israel, who is that's already been taking place for thousands, thousands of years. And we need to try and think through that. Anything you want to add to that? Brilliant. That's a brilliant metaphor. Uh, That that that's exactly right. And I, you know, I'm a first generation immigrant, and I can relate to that in many ways. When I became a U.S. citizen, I've used that as a sermon illustration. You know, like this this people's story and this people's history has has now become my uh, history and my story and in a lesser sense part of my story has become their story but there's much more of a sense in which i'm being brought into a larger story and and that is what's happening in salvation i mean that's what paul says in ephesians and uh you know we've been brought out of of darkness into light and we're brought into kind of this new new kingdom and new story um and 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 again the the, the exodus narrative is such a paradigm for thinking about all of this we've been translated from slavery to sonship you know israel is my firstborn therefore let him leave egypt and let him worship me god says so first of all there's sonship not slavery or or we're a child of god not slaves to god therefore god rescues us why so that we can worship him and and our story is now uh, different we're not egypt's story we're israel's story we, we're, we're learning a new story so learning the 10 commandments or like us learning the, the the scriptures as a whole so all of that is part of worship it's learning your story and learning what it means to be a daughter or son of god that's the story that we're living into that's awesome well we'll end there uh thank you so much for doing this i hope I hope people, it gets their wheels turning about what it means to be the people of God that sing together. Um, emphasis on that together part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can tell, tell you someone who's now living in a different, different place where I don't get to do some of those things. That's what I miss most, to be honest. I can find preaching anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to be able to sing with people um, is, is a thing that I, I really dearly dearly miss and so i hope i hope we can begin to have some fuller um language and conversation around how do we do that better and and how do we as individuals actually engage with that and uh, i I appreciate you coming on to help us help us do that and uh, i think step one would be i think pastors just going into the ccli archives and pulling out a desperation band song this (laughs) that's definitely step one that's That's definitely step that's definitely step one so uh glenn thank you so much uh for coming on i really appreciate it It was good to see you again uh it had been a couple of years i uh i really appreciate you and the work that you're doing and the church there we follow you guys still and uh dearly dearly love uh the the body there so thank you maxwell appreciate you
Yeah. Yeah. No problem. No problem. So, uh, we'll go with that and we'll, uh, we'll hopefully see you again. I'd love to do this again sometime and we can figure that out. Awesome. Later, so. All right. Awesome. We'll talk to you later.